Film Spotting SVU is presented by Movies on Demand on Cable, bringing the latest indie movies into your home at the touch of a button. A middle-aged couple befriends a pair of younger, hipper Brooklynites in Noah Baumbach's While We're Young. Starring Ben Stiller and Naomi Watts, it's now playing On Demand. Nicole Kidman and Joseph Fine star as an Australian couple whose teenage children get lost in the desert in Strangerland. Premiering On Demand on July 10th, the same day it hits theaters. The latest independent films are ready when you are with Movies On Demand on cable. The art house is now in your house. This episode of Film Spotting SVU is also supported by SundanceNow.club, the new streaming service for everyone who loves documentaries. Discover unforgettable films you can't find anywhere else. To get a free 30-day trial, go to dotclub.com slash SVU. That's D-O-C-C-L-U-B dot com slash S-V-U. From New York City, this is Film Spotting Streaming Video Unit. I'm Matt Singer. And I'm Allison Wilmore. And this week on SVU, Matt's in Iceland, and I'm hanging out in Mumbai. But through the magic of a mysterious psychic bond, we're getting together to review the new Netflix series, Sense8. How's the weather over there in Iceland, Matt? It's uh, surprisingly warm, actually. It kind of feels, frankly, it feels a lot like Brooklyn. Mumbai as well. I hadn't expected. Weird. Weird. I guess everywhere you go, there you are. <laughs> Later in the show, we'll bring you cue shots where we recommend some titles you can rent or stream at home right now. And those are all centered on a common theme. Inspired by Sense8, we were going to go with movies set all over the globe in which characters of diverse backgrounds have psychic orgies. But we couldn't find enough movies to fill the segment. We had three. The classic three everyone always thinks of when they think of movies about people from all over the globe of diverse backgrounds with psychic orgies. There's Last Year at Marion Bad. There's Roger and me, and there's Weekend at Bernie's. But those are the only three. There's no fourth we one. We needed four. We needed four. So instead, we're going to talk more about the creators of Sense8, the Wachowskis. We'll tell you where you can find all of their work online, and we'll discuss the ups and downs of their careers. And probably we'll make, I don't know, how many jokes about knowing Kung Fu, Allison? Three? I'm four? I'm going to say, let's keep it in the three to ten range. Okay. And how many times am I allowed to say, whoa, like Keanu Reeves? Uh, I'll give you a dozen. Whoa. That's one. Uh, that's one. I've got 11 more. But first up, it's opening break, a segment we do in conjunction with our sponsor, Movies on Demand on Cable, in which we spotlight a few notable films that are new on demand. Allison, you have our picks this time. What's the first one? Well, first up is a movie that is now available on demand and is one that I really liked. It is 71, which is directed by Jan Demange. And along with Startup, which we talked about here on the podcast, is one of the two films that put Jack O'Connell on everyone's radar before he went on to his bigger and frankly less interesting role as <laughs> Louis Zamperini in Unbroken, his kind of of the big Angelina Jolie directed Oscar movie uh, that came out towards the end of last year. Uh, in 71, he plays a British soldier who is sent to Belfast in 1971 in the midst of the troubles. Uh, and basically on his first day on the job ends up getting stranded and left behind in the middle of like in the middle of the city in this turbulent, dangerous and mostly hostile neighborhood. And he spends the whole night out trying to get safely back. And meanwhile, there are different kind of forces at play, including 
some of the Protestant loyalists working on a bomb. Uh, a lot of the kind of Catholics, you know, like are ready to, and especially the younger branch of the IRA are ready to shoot him on sight. And, uh, and then there's like the British kind of like, kind of intelligence agencies who are like working with at least one side and maybe both. And in the middle, you have O'Connell, who is just so good at seeming both young and kind of brash and daring and also just terrified. <laughs> And he spends a lot of this movie justifiably terrified and putting a very human face on the kind of ongoing turbulence and just kind of like disaster going on uh, that he's dropped in the middle of uh, and, and uh, is, is really good. This is an action movie, really, though I think it also manages to glance on a lot of just the total complications of the scenario, especially then in 1971. This is the front line, boys. Catholics and Protestants living side by side at each other's throats. Divided by the Divis Flats. But do not enter the flats. They become very dangerous. Hold the line! So it's great. It's a really, I want <laughs> it's a really exciting movie while also obviously being kind of a brutal one. So that's 71 and it is now available on demand. Uh, also now available on demand, uh, two movies that you may have seen already. I, they're both movies that I like a lot. Uh, one is I think one of my favorites of the year so far, Ex Machina, which is available on demand on July 14th. This is Alex Gar Garland's directorial debut starring Domhnall Gleeson as a just a, an employee at a tech company who randomly wins a contest to go out into the wilderness and spend a week with the reclusive CEO played by Oscar Isaac, who is always good and is such a pleasure to watch as like a programmer in this. And uh, he's there to actually help test his new invention, an android who is played by Alicia Vikander. And I, I think that this is the kind of sci-fi that is really you can totally get excited about because it's it deals with a lot of very uh, interesting ideas about humanity uh, about ethics about uh about kind of what it means to, to have artificial intelligence but it's also just like very creepily and evocatively directed it's got this like bluebeard kind of theme running through it uh, with the you know the the monster with or the the man with the closets that you're not uh, the room that you're not supposed to look into, um, and I, I I really loved how it played out. So Ex Machina is now available or it will be available on demand on July 14th, as will Clouds of Sils Maria, which is the latest film from Olivier Assayas, starring Juliette Binoche as a famous movie star and stage actress who is coming to a sort of turning point in her career. She's been asked to revisit the play that made her famous, uh, except this time she's going to be playing the older role against the part of like the younger woman that was her, you know, breakout. And it's this meditation on aging, on performance, on celebrity, on art. And uh, Binoche is always great. But I think the standouts here are in particular Kristen Stewart, who plays her assistant, and has there's a lot of interesting tension there in having one of the most scrutinized, uh, you know, actresses in modern day Hollywood and like kind of like most paparazzi hounded actresses play this very normal assistant who is not only the force of kind of pragmatism and like 
the girl who's kind of like looking a little bedraggled and nor- like yes like a like sneaker wearing girl all the time but also the one who's totally aware of gossip sites and aware of the machinery of celebrity she talks about it a lot and that's there's something fascinating about that also uh, chloe grace moretz is interesting kind of playing a little bit older actually as this american actress who has her seen her fair share of uh, scandals already. It's a very smart movie and a kind of enigmatic one towards the end, uh, anchored by these three strong performances. So if you like Olivia Assayas, I, you know, he's always someone whose movies uh, give you a lot to think about. And this one is, is no different. Clouds of Sils Maria, available on demand on July 14th. I have Mr. John on the line again. He told me if you don't pick up... His next call will have to be to the authorities. I knew you would be back. This is a very good arm. Someone is stealing from me. If I confess to your crime, the company may be able to survive. I don't know how, but I know you are a friend. You are no longer just you. What am I? On the last episode of Film Spotting SVU, your listeners' choice options were the first season of the Wachowskis' new Netflix series Sense8, the first season of the new Amazon Prime series Catastrophe, or the new Elmore Leonard adaptation Life of Crime. And it was indeed a catastrophe for Catastrophe, which got just 14% of the vote. Although, frankly, if I'd had a vote, Allison, that's probably where mine would have gone. Okay. I'm actually looking forward to watching that. I'm preparing for a trip for work, and I just downloaded the first episode to my Kindle, so I plan on watching that. So forget you, SVU listeners. I'm (laughs) watching it anyway. In second place was Life of Crime with uh, 20% of the vote, but... With 65% of the vote, the winner this time was Sense8. And this is the first television series by the Wachowskis, Andy and Lana, best known for creating the Matrix trilogy, one of the most popular and influential science fiction series of the last 25 years. The years since the Matrix trilogy, though, have seen the Wachowskis, I would say, struggle to connect with audiences in the same way they did with the story of Neo, Trinity, and Morpheus there live-action Speed Racer made less in its entire run in theaters than The Matrix Revolutions made in its first three days of release, its first its opening weekend. In 2012, they made Cloud Atlas, an even more ambitious film based on a supposedly unadaptable novel that made even less money than Speed Racer. And this year's Jupiter Ascending, which was supposed to be last year's Jupiter Ascending until it was pushed back from its prime summer release date to the dumping ground of February didn't do much better. Structurally, Sense8 bears a certain similarity to Cloud Atlas in that it's an ensemble story, it has a bunch of diverse characters, and it is about how these separate individuals, even in their myriad differences, represent a certain sort of universality or express the commonalities of the human condition. The difference was that Cloud Atlas was set in six different time periods, and generally speaking, the characters from each story didn't interact or blend together, even though each one kind of influenced the other in certain ways. Sense8, on the other hand, is set in the present, and it's eight heroes, which range from an Icelandic DJ 
to a Chicago cop, to a closeted Mexican movie star, to a transgendered woman from San Francisco. They all share a mysterious psychic bond, which enables them to communicate across vast distances and even borrow each other's special abilities. Now, we're going to talk more about the Wachowskis and their work in our Q-Shot segment a little later, so let's stick to Sense8 for now. My question to you, Allison, is this. What did you make of the Wachowskis' transition from film to TV? Do you think they got the medium uh, the way they get the medium of film? And do you want to see a second season of Sense8, or would you rather Andy and Lana immediately go back to the world of cinema? I am fond of this series, even though I think it has some significant problems, particularly in what you're getting at in terms of in terms of TV structure. This is a series that attempts to juggle eight separate storylines in addition to having a kind of larger one in mm-hmm. theory right. about this world, this kind of conspiracy. These yes. Yes, in, in terms of like the, what the sensates are and also this conspiracy in which they seem to be hunted. Right. And I think that it it is much better at dealing with these moments of connection, mm-hmm. which is clearly where the, their interest is, yes. than in managing to make all of these stories compelling mm. or even necessarily to to balance them out that well. There are times where I've seen the whole series. I know you have not. I finished, I finished the first season. I would say that there are times in which I forgot what was going on in a particular character's life because some of their storylines are much more interesting than others. And each episode sets up parallels in which whatever's going on in one person's life will kind of have echoes in someone else's, which is how they're able to help each other as well and relate. But I don't know that... It's certainly a really difficult thing to attempt, Mm -hmm. but I don't know that it always pulled that off. Uh, And the whole larger storyline is very slow to un- un- you know kind of be revealed it it comes through for a while in the storyline of Nomi who yes. is the trans woman and the activist um but yeah it definitely there's very little information revealed until towards the end of the series and even then it's not a lot i would like to see another season of this sure in part because i also don't think the the Wachowskis are someone's going to be rolling out the red carpet for them in terms of a movie anytime soon probably not or certainly not like the, on the scale that they want to work at. Right. There's no, you know, this series has not been renewed yet either. Okay. Uh, the Sense8 Netflix mm-hmm. has not, despite whatever, you know, operating on whatever like uh, ma- uh, metric uh, Netflix uses to. Uh, but I, I appreciated the scope of it throughout, even as I didn't feel like they really had a handle on it. I think that that's the kind of thing that a first season is for to figure that out. So I think that a second season would also have a bit more forward motion, or at least that I would hope. But I don't know, Matt. You did not finish this, and there was a reason. Tell me what you thought about about their approach to television. Well, part of it, the reason I didn't finish was just I had a busy week and weekend, the holidays and stuff. But so do you see yourself finishing it? No, after I this? don't. I yeah. don't. And it was it was a struggle for me to get through it. I may, I watched seven episodes and. First of all, this is really silly and nitpicky, but why isn't it eight episodes? It's Sense8. There's eight people. <laughs> Shouldn't it be eight episodes? And maybe that's more my frustration with the fact that I did find the, this one of the slowest moving shows that I've really tried 
to watch. I'm not saying there aren't slower, but in terms of shows that I really like, didn't just give up with and grappled with as long as I had time to and really could take, I was sort of going, oh my goodness, there's just nothing really going on here. And I agree with you that the moments of connection are occasionally very profound and beautiful. And I think the premise of the show is brilliant. It's a classic comic booky sci-fi premise and it really speaks to me. I would love to see the 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 I don't know if it's more mainstream or just more accessible or more story-bound version of that of this idea where you have these eight people who are all interconnected and they can kind of coach one another through these dark moments in their lives and they they're they're essentially like a, a justice league almost of ordinary people who can kind of access each other's abilities and they're like part therapists and part coaches and I just I think that's a great idea I just this version of that idea I really found kind of frankly pretty boring I really did and there was a couple of storylines I liked uh, individual characters that I liked because even though they do kind of meet and cross over mentally a lot of it is just their individual lives and they each have a storyline that they're dealing with and I found one or two interesting and I found the rest really just kind of lacking in which any kind of interest. Which I did like, I mean, maybe it's because it's the fact that she has the the part that is the most about the conspiracy, but I did like Nomi's storyline and her backstory and, and the fact that she seemed the most sort of, I don't know, it seemed like the most tension and, and richness of conflict there because her family is somehow involved and her her mother doesn't uh, you know agree with becoming a woman and all that sort of stuff. So there was kind of I just felt there was more going on there and I liked her girl the, her girlfriend I thought was probably the best supporting character of the whole show. So I like that storyline a lot. I also like the storyline involving the closeted Mexican actor because that that storyline again also has some some conflict, some drama, a lot of comedy actually. There's some really funny moments and it seemed to me like the Wachowskis uh, were kind of poking fun at themselves in some moments in terms of because he he makes these like really macho action movies there's sort of a scene that's kind of poking fun at like bullet time and the matrix and, and like slow-mo wires, fighting and wire wires, food. Yeah. yeah and i just thought that they were having a lot of fun with themselves in that sequence well, a lot of that storyline is also about the idea of finding profundity in genre fiction that's true. Right? That's a good point. Which is especially the type of genre fiction that the Wachowskis do. That's a great point. You know. Yeah, I agree. And so I like those two storylines a lot. Like if the whole show was a storyline about a show about Nomi or I probably would be more into it. I guess I just the other ones I haven't mentioned yet and maybe you can kind of defend them. I'd love to hear you kind of argue for some of them. Uh, I, I like when they would when some of these characters would come on the screen, I would just kind of like kind of sigh and go, OK. And the other thing was it just I, I would really lose the thread too. you know, like a character would come on screen. You'd have a scene that was maybe interesting and then you wouldn't see them for the rest of the episode or for more than that. You know, and I just felt like you were right. My question earlier to you to start the segment was a little bit leading because I just I, I don't know it. it and this maybe isn't just them. This might be a Netflix thing or a streaming thing, a larger issue we could talk about. Because I feel like, and I think we've talked about this before in the show, but the idea of binge-watching a show, I almost feel is now having like a pernicious effect on on television specifically created for streaming services. Because the whole concept of binge-watching, which kind of came organically out of viewers – 
because they were watching these shows on like DVD when, you know, like The Wire was released on DVD. I personally like binge watched the show because I was working at a video store and I was just taking the discs home every night and watching three or four episodes every night. The show was that addictive. You ha- you had to find out what was happening. There was larger stories, but every episode had a mystery or had something. The, the It was moving forward. This show is more like it's like a 12 hour movie i guess because there really aren't individual like each individual episode i did not find to be a satisfying unit of storytelling where i there would be like the story the sh- i would watch an hour and i would say i don't feel satisfied like i got enough but not where i was like oh i can't wait to find out what happens next it just there wasn't a lot to hook me and even the cliffhangers i found really underwhelming like the example i wrote down in my notes was the cliffhanger to episode five is one of the characters faints. Oh my goodness. And then the story doesn't, the next episode doesn't show her for like 15, more than 15 minutes. And it's like, well, what happened to that character? Like, it's, maybe they just weren't interested in that, but I found it frustrating, very frustrating. Yeah, I did not have a tough time with this in terms of like getting through it. I really, honestly, like House of Cards season three felt slower to me. I mean, that's than... another example that I would agree did feel like yeah. they were making it under the presumption of everyone's going to watch every episode. We don't have to make it as, and I think that's where we talked about this right. problem. Yeah, and I, I think this, I thought this show suffered from the exact same issue. Yeah, I don't know. I think, I think what you run into with this show is also that. Well, I I do feel like it lacks that kind of like underlying narrative that provides the series with that forward like momentum that makes you want to be like, what happens next? What happens next? It's also kind of unapologetically a sci-fi series that is not that interested in the global conspiracy. Like what's happening? You know, it really like it's it comes to life so much more in these little human moments. And I think that there is something very vibrant about and something I really liked about how the characters initially kind of, you know, think they're hallucinating or think that they're like, they don't know what's going on. And then also they just accept it. Mm-hmm. The ones that are not attached to the conspiracy at all, who have not really been told, who are not touching the character who tells, who kind of explains and provides background. Right. Uh, everyone else just kind of accepts it and also accepts that this, like their lives include these seven other people within their scope mm-hmm. who can kind of provide solace or provide you know and i think that there is something that comes through in those moments that is very lovely about the concept of never being alone Mm -hmm. you know that like this concept of kind of like shared connection uh and i i I thought i really appreciated the way that the series handled that as much as it kind of floundered in terms of uh, yeah, like generating conflict. You know, like there are storylines in this that I had to remind myself. The the Berlin character, like I still do. You even know his name, Wolfgang, because they there's a part towards the end where it gets repeated a lot. Okay, and they call him Wolfie as okay. well. Okay, because I I didn't know it off the top of my head. I'm I'm looking at it. Otherwise, I if you had asked me, I would have been honest I, and said I don't well, know who that character's name. I did not remember. I did not know the name of the character in Mumbai. Like I didn't know her you know, either, and I did not remember. It's, it's, is it Kala? I'm looking it's at the Kala. list. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um. Yeah, you know, and I did not know the name of the character in Nairobi. Like, right. Yeah. So here's my question for you, though. Yeah. This, like, like Cloud Atlas, is a is a story that attempts, like, very kind of like open heartedly Mm. to have characters from all walks of life and all parts of the world. Uh, Did you feel that the that the creators were able to handle that? You know, having a character 
I, I mean, that's a challenge as well to be like, how do you write a character who is like a van driver in Nairobi? Presumably, like, I don't know how much contact the Wachowskis have right. had with like, you know, what it's like to be in Nairobi. Meaning like a question of authenticity, like well, how yeah. did authentic you feel, did that seem? Did you feel that they were able to have those characters exist beyond maybe a certain kind of like, I don't know, in the same way, like a Icelandic DJ, you know, like this, like, did you feel like those characters, did those characters ring true to you or did they feel like some... There were moments, there were certainly moments where I, I questioned it in terms of their language. Now, granted, everyone's speaking in English, but I think the idea Which is, is a problem sometimes. I, I think, think the like, idea is supposed to be that they're speaking in their own languages, but we're yes. just, in, rather than making us read subtitles, they're speaking in, in English. So maybe that's part of it. But it did seem at times where the, the, the dialogues felt more like things that an American person would say more than a, an older Asian woman might say, for example, or the, yeah, that someone from Nairobi might say, and that I questioned some of that. But I think that they would argue that the whole point of the movie is about, uh, or the show rather, is about universality. And uh, I think they would probably say that that's the point, is that they're trying to, to, to show the commonalities between these people, despite all their differences. And I, like I said, I did find that kind of endearing about the show and the fact how, that it is such an incredibly diverse cast um you know different genders and different sexualities and i like that about it too i thought that you know that it's a nice kind of corrective to a certain kind of stodgy old-fashionedness i just wished i i just wished the characters i i guess the authenticity didn't bother me as much as sort of the compellingness i just didn't find a lot of richness to some of these characters like riley the icelandic dj i just didn't really didn't really care about her storyline at all. And it seemed to involve a lot of her just kind of walk, wandering around, moping. And, you know, there's a lot of characters whose storylines are so passive and just sitting around not doing anything. Uh, the character in Mumbai, Kala, just, you know, should I get married or not? Which I think could be a really rich and interesting storyline. But I just found the way that it was handled, at least through the first seven episodes, was a lot of sitting around and kind of looking sort of forlornly and occasionally having another character from another part of the world coming in and and uh she has a lot of scenes with wolfgang and you know sort of their like attraction and i feel like if again if that storyline was maybe compressed that could be interesting but after seven episodes having so little happen it's just like the snail's pace the feeling i got by, by after seven episodes was like this is a show that's being told entirely in bullet time everybody's just moving in slow motion and i just wanted things to speed up a lot not even a little yeah, I don't know. In terms of in terms of their their attempts or their kind of like fearlessness in including characters mm. that from all over the place, I, I appreciate it. Even though I do think it is fairly clumsy. Like I don't think that the storyline of Will, who is the Chicago police officer, and Chirac and uh, and their treatment of like gang violence there, I think that's like a pretty like I researched this on the internet and then <laughs> wrote this storyline kind of take on it. And yeah, at the same time, I really do appreciate like how willing they are to try. Right. You know? And, that, and I, they're, they're ambitious. They're bold about that. That's something that they, we can talk about more later. They are not afraid to yeah. try to include a character that maybe they don't know all that well. And that right. they're, they're, I do find something likable about that. I was wondering this, not to interrupt you, but did you want, did I, speaking of the diversity of the show, I, I almost felt like the, the, because there is like sort of the straight white guy cop character, Will from Chicago. I almost felt like he was boring on purpose. Did you get that sense ever? I, that they were almost trying to make him kind of blow land to yeah. sort of contradict you know to sort of like accentuate the need for diversity and not only in this show but in general that they just I, I i was trying to 
maybe I was trying to justify it a little because I found him so boring. Yeah, I kept getting him like mixed up for a little while with the Berlin guy who was a criminal, but they like look, they a, look little a little similar. alike. Yeah, and yeah, I, I mean they are kind of the least interesting of the group, yeah. which is an interesting twist. Uh, but I, yeah, I don't know. I mean, I think that. It doesn't always, they also don't always, I didn't I love the fact that there are two romances within the group, mm-hmm. um, yeah. in, which kind of, and like fairly traditional romances, you know, in that way, uh, I, that I kind of wish that there had been, that that hadn't been like the obvious narrative, one of those obvious narrative drives. Um, yeah, I don't know. That said, I, I appreciate that there is, you know, I love Baiduna. I don't think that she's, that acting in English is like great for her, but she's an actress that I love seeing on a like bigger platform like that. You know, um, I think that Tina Desai, who was in the best exotic Marigold hotel, I think, you know, is a very promising actress and that she, you see a lot of that, you know, in getting to do a bit more, even if that storyline's a little slow. And Jimmy Clayton is a trans woman playing a trans woman. I thought she was great. Yeah. And I think even if that storyline requires a lot of like, uh, her just kind of flatly saying, you know, like saying like a lot of these theses about like, uh, uh, she's almost like an internet treatise at points, mm-hmm. you know, in terms of what she delivers. But I think, yeah, she's great. And I love that the show also in, like went with that casting and like told that storyline. And I mean, that storyline in, in many ways felt like the most kind of like, like emotionally resonant, I think. I you know? agree. I completely agree. Um, but yeah, oh, the one other thing I do want to mention is that I really do admire how, like, this show, the show's approach to sex and sexuality, like, it yes. has sex scenes of a sort that I have never seen, you know, it, ones involving, like, this trans actor, but also the kind of, like, goofy for a long time Mexican storyline in which there's like a closeted couple and then this woman who kind of forcefully becomes their beard, their live-in beard. Yes. And also sort of they're like almost like part of this love triangle in ways that I have never seen before. I really love that in that. I just, it felt like something new, you know, I don't think I've ever seen that before. I uh, completely agree. And again, you're sort of both, but you're also mentioning like the two storylines where that you've cited were the ones that I liked. And uh, I agree those, that was another thing that I found pretty bold about the show, but it, that's literally 25% of the show is those two parts. And uh, yeah, I just, I mean, I don't know if it's something that's inherent in the structure of this kind of story, because it is kind of like a crash, a sort of supernatural, like kind of a crash movie or an, you know, one of those movies about ensembles with a diverse group of people that's about an issue and they kind of, uh, they have these connections and this is sort of that. It's not that far removed from yeah, it. Yeah, but it's also, about, you know, in, in ways, all of those stories are about how we're supposed to see the kind of un, unwitting connections, thematic connections between that they the storylines. But these stories are explicitly about, you know, like someone being like, let me tell you how this thing that's happening in my life halfway around the globe like has relevance to you. That's absolutely true. I was thinking more in the terms of the, the fact that when you tell that many stories – all the characters, they get like their amount of time we can spend with them gets shrunk down and they get flattened out and they become more 
what they are can be described in three words. Oh, that's the Icelandic DJ, not this is the Icelandic DJ who has this and that and this. They, they just don't have the richness of character that you would have if the whole show was about Nomi. If she was the main character and we spent the entire show with her and we could just follow her quest and maybe slowly bring in eight other characters like that. She, as she discovers the truth, we kind of find like uh, maybe I'm not trying to tell them how to make their show. I just think that it almost seems like a byproduct of making the show this way, just, you know, as ambitious as it becomes and as diverse as it becomes is you just don't get a great sense of the characters, so especially right away. It needs a piper in order to get to season two of Orange is the New Black. Maybe, but that's interesting because the season two of Orange is the New Black almost abandoned Piper uh-huh. where she became a minor character. I mean, this is the third season, which I have been watching and, and enjoying. She's a slightly more important again. But yeah, she's barely in the second season. So I don't I don't know. I don't know. I just it's like if you describe the show to me and what it is and what it's who it's by, what it's about, I would say this sounds fantastic. And I've been looking forward to this show and I was looking forward to watching it. And then the actual experience of watching it. I just found so frustrating and it's just, I just, I just kept sitting there going, I wish I want, I was trying to will myself to like it more like, like, because it has so many things that I do like and I would feel like I would enjoy. And I just kept, I don't know. I just did not enjoy the experience of watching it. I, I was like, this is like the matrix. And there are certainly some storyline points that are just like the matrix, but this is like the matrix. If you did not see Keanu Reeves learn Kung Fu until 10 hours in or something like that because I watched seven hours and very few of them had learned Kung Fu so to speak like barely and they were still seven hours in doing that thing of like who are you what's going on how is this happening like you said that oh they eventually start to accept it and I got by where I was in the show yes I saw a little bit of that but it was still like sort of like the scene you know, you that you can almost predict the scene of like the person discover like seeing someone they don't expect for the first time and going, oh my goodness, like like it still felt like they were still in the very beginnings of fleshing out this this uh, mythology after seven hours, and that at least to me that was a that was a lot of time to ask me to devote without giving me something in return. Yeah, I don't know. It worked for me. I think that there is there is something to the way that it is led by characters rather than by its conspiracy that mm-hmm. I appreciated as much as it required more patience. But I, you know, I think there's really something to be said about sci-fi that is much more invested in the kind of emotional journeys of its characters than in story All as right. much as that will may drive you insane. Uh, drive me personally insane. All right. Well, we are definitely a little bit split on sense but if you want to watch it yourself, it is available now on Netflix. Here he comes, here comes Speed Racer He's a demon on wheel He's a demon and he's gonna be chasing after someone We're thrilled to have SundanceNow.club back as a sponsor on this episode of Filmspotting SVU. Dot Club is a new streaming service for everyone who loves documentaries. Dot Club brings the human voice back to movie recommendations. Unlike other services, Dot Club's films are handpicked by expert programmers with unique perspectives, as well as cultural icons like Ira Glass or Susan Sarandon. Dot Club's library of documentaries includes incredible stories of all types, including crime, history, politics, music, and sex. And as a Sundance Now Dot Club member, you also get exclusive benefits like free movie tickets access to film festivals, award shows, 
and more. And I took a look earlier today at the newest additions to Duck Club and the one that caught my eye this week that I would have most liked to watch right now if I wasn't watching episode seven of uh, Sense8 would have been page one inside the New York Times directed by Andrew Rossi. This film, which premiered at the Sundance Film Festival in 2011, chronicles a year in the life of the Times and it follows several different reporters and editors as they go about their daily lives. And Rossi happened to be on hand for a crucial time in the history of the Times and really all of journalism as you know, the old print models are giving way to this digital future that we're all living in. But the reason I really want to rewatch it now is that one of its main characters, its hero, really, in a lot of senses, is this guy by the name of David Carr, a media columnist and reporter for The Times who passed away, sadly, earlier this year and who has some great scenes in this movie. Maybe the most famous one is the one where he takes this meeting with several guys from the media company Vice and absolutely schools them on the reality of reporting. Uh, if you're a fan of David Carr or if you're just curious about the lives of reporters at the New York Times and modern journalism, this is a really fascinating film, one you should definitely check out. Page one inside the New York Times. Film Spotting SVU listeners can watch page one and many more documentaries by going to SundanceNow.club and signing up for a free 30-day trial to try out their service. You can get your free 30-day trial at docclub.com slash SVU. That's D-O-C-C-L-U-B dot com slash SVU. So we're going to take a look at the career of Lana and Andy Wachowski um, from start to sensate. But uh, we wanted to note right now, they're, they're fairly limited streaming options in terms of their movies. Bound, their directorial debut, is streaming on Netflix. And The Animatrix, which is more this kind of tangential animated anthology series related to The Matrix. Sort of is, set in the world of The Matrix. Exactly. Is available on Netflix as well. Um, but everything else of theirs is available for rent via all of the usual usual platforms. So their stuff is very easy to see. Yes. It's just not that easy to see on subscription services. So Lana and Andy Wachowski, they began their career in comic books. And I think it's been very interesting to see that... They've been looked at as these kind of iconic, I don't know, like sci like sci-fi people from that world, but they've become like they're not fitting into that anymore. They're still doing sci-fi, but it does not fit into a kind of like dude mentality anymore. That's yeah, that's interesting. And 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 not just a dude mentality, but a comic booky thing. Right. I mean, they you would think would be the the ultimate wish list directors for one of these big comic book movies because as you said, they they did get their start writing comic books, and then really in the comic books were so influential in their film work. I mean, especially The Matrix is so comic booky, yeah. And really, a lot of their stuff that they've done since then. Now they pr they produced like V for Vendetta, which they wrote as well. Right? They wrote and produced the, the adaptation. Yeah. Supposedly didn't direct it. There's you know you hear urban legends that they were like secretly directing it or whatever, but they're not credited on it. But they certainly worked on the film, the version. But that's not you know V for Vendetta. It's an excellent book. It's an Alan Moore comic book. It's a graphic novel, but it's not Superman. It's not. You would think that that uh, you know that someone would have poached them for that. And 
you know, it's funny. You were saying earlier that they, you know, you're wondering after the string of flops that they've had, who's going to come knocking on their door to make another $175 million ambitious, arty sci-fi movie. And maybe that's not what's going to happen. Maybe what's going to happen is they will finally make one of these adaptations. Maybe DC will, you know, they've made a lot of movies for Warner Brothers over the years. Maybe they will uh, finally convince them to make something in their in their library. And I don't doubt that they could do a fantastic job. I think that the reason maybe that they haven't done it and this is something I want to talk about with you is that they've they've had so much success with the Matrix, financial, creative, everything. And then even though people don't love the sequels, they made a ton of money, you know, and, and they made the Animatrix and they made video games and action figures. It became a whole universe that it gave them a certain amount of creative autonomy that in some senses they've been sort of like slowly lose. It's been Just eating away at it's yeah. been eating away all at that, that goodwill. Exactly. <laughs> through all of these these flops which we can discuss also and which i like some of them a lot like cloud atlas we didn't talk a ton about it we compared it i compared it to sense eight i think they are very similar in a lot of ways i love cloud atlas uh i didn't like sense eight but i think that's a great underrated movie i didn't like some of their other movies so much but i don't think that it's all been bad movies i just think they haven't necessarily all connected but what i'm kind of curious to discuss with you is sort of just has has all of that cachet been a, all necessarily a good thing the fact that they've been able to do whatever they wanted do you think that maybe having this many flops and perhaps in a, having a future where maybe we'll see them direct i don't know uh, green lantern or something like that would that maybe be good for them would you be interested in seeing that or do you would you rather them keep making these very idiosyncratic very personal visions oh i definitely want them to keep making these i think they're <sighs> I, I'm not very interested in a Wachowski superhero movie. I, I'm sure they'd be good at it, but I just feel like they're doing something that is so weird and so different and so and exists in such a different way within kind of like a culture of like kind of sci-fi and fandom and like and general geekiness it, that just is so different from the mainstream. And I really... I, I want them to keep doing that. Mm. But let's start with Bound. Okay. Since it is the movie that is available on streaming. And it is the movie that with which they made their directorial debut. And also is the movie that is is not kind of out there in some form of like weird sci-fi surrealness. It is a a thriller and a kind of like intimate one that happens to have as its, as its main characters, two lesbians and it has a lesbian romance uh, in addition to a theft. Um, and I, I don't, I was rewatching a little bit of this. I didn't have a chance to go back and look at the same thing, mm -hmm. the whole thing. But I, I do think that like the way that the romance between the characters is portrayed and like this, like this, it's a sexy movie. Like they definitely, it has like some famous, particularly scenes of seduction yes is that it doesn't feel it doesn't feel like it's leering at them mm. you know in a way where if you tell someone oh jennifer tilly and gina gershon and like this hot lesbian romance right like, that sounds like it's going to be like softcore porn right right and it doesn't feel that way at all mm. you know yeah, that's interesting. You know, you think about it because it was their first movie and you go, well, well, how do we make a first movie? And it's like, how do we sell a movie in Hollywood? And it's like hot lesbians in a uh, in a stealing movie. Stealing from the mob. Stealing from the mob. And the movie's called Bound. So it almost sounds like it has this, you know, bondage -y element. And it's like, 
but then you're right that there and and this filters through to all of their stuff. There isn't uh, they do have a lot of sex, including up to Sense Eight. Sex uh, as a sex is a very big part of a lot of their movies, and it's very kind of. I don't know. There's like a certain joyousness to it. Yeah, that's. Yeah. I agree that it's not ever a thing that's tawdry or sleazy, but that it is kind of freeing and beautiful and celebratory, which yeah is is uh, it is unusual in uh, well certainly in American movie making yes. in general. We're, we're like shame. Where is the shame? Right. <laughs> that there really isn't that, and that it's often the complete opposite. It's that that that's and it's, sometimes is the sort of like the element that that. that transformative element because transformation is always a big part of their movies too it's like that is is like intrinsically connected with sexuality in a lot of their films so yeah that's an interesting observation i i didn't have a chance to go back and watch it and i haven't seen it in a long time but that's that is absolutely what i remember about it third sort of the sexiness of it uh but all but that it's not like a it doesn't feel tawdry or sleazy or like an exploitation movie but that it like they find a way to make sexy movies and sexy sex scenes without it being kind of like leering and gross and horrible yeah which is a skill it is a skill and i think you know in in this movie it essentially just like gender flips the main character right that quirky the character who's like an ex-con played by jenna gershon there's like a a movie in which that character could play play by a guy and that like it's just this femme fatale potential femme fatale trying to get him to like get her out of this relationship uh, and it is it it does i think it is a neat twist on this kind of noirish this noirish plot otherwise um but yeah i it's a, it was an interesting debut and it was one that i really liked uh and one that really like demanded your attention now i didn't finish sense 8 I watched seven episodes, but at a certain point when I realized I'm not going to finish the whole show, it's not possible, feasible. And I was like, you know what I'm going to do instead is I'm going to rewatch the original Matrix, which I haven't seen in a long time. And I rented it and I re and I watched it. And I was just like, yes, yes. Because I was at some point I was like, (laughs) is it me? Am I just like, am I out of it? Am I losing it? And, and, you know, I haven't enjoyed uh, some of the more recent things that they've done and you do get to that thing where you go was the was that thing that we loved really as good as we thought it was or was was were, were we just was something pulled over our eyes because maybe you know the effects were so cool and it had some interesting ideas but i have to say looking back at it there is a lot of exposition in it it is a lot of people saying well what is this what is that which is it, I guess it I, I noticed that more than i had when it came out but it is still it's so fun and interesting and it has all these ideas and one of the things that struck me is about looking at it again is that sensate does have a lot of the similar themes ideas i just you know it's funny because the matrix is a sci-fi film and it has all these sorts of uh, ideas in it but it is it is sci-fi action kung fu it, it sort of it the genre first and it's like I think you might have even said during our review, Sense8 sort of flips that where it has the genre elements, but it's much more interested in the sort of the idea of connection and universality and and finding people and, and empathy and all of these sort of bigger things. And I just I don't know. I wonder if it's maybe I, not that those things don't have value, but I'm wondering if maybe there's a middle ground they could find that perhaps they've gone too far into preachiness per se and not and and they've sort of lost a little bit too much of the entertainment value perhaps for me that maybe i'd like to see just a little bit more of the matrix sense of that movie moves it is propulsive right that it's just like go 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 and 
they keep breaking up the scenes where they're explaining things with fighting scenes and action and chases. And it's like, it has a sense of energy to it that I, I did feel like was lacking from Sense8. Yeah, I, I mean, I haven't, I have not had a chance to see this movie for a long time. And it, it is funny that, like, such is the reputation of The Matrix that it did, it kind of carries the rest of the trilogy with it. Yeah. Despite, like, the general disappointment, I think, w- that was, uh, with which the two sequels were met. Uh, you know, that, like, you can have two sequels that sort of, I don't know, should, in theory, exhaust all of that goodwill. And yet they have it. The Matrix is still a classic. The the first film itself, and they really milked, like, not just with those sequels, because they made video games and a online multiplayer game and the Animatrix, and they really milked that sucker dry. But the first movie, it's funny because I also was, that movie inspired so many terrible you know, bullet time-esque uh, special effects, oh, yeah. wire work in Hollywood stunts, and just... Cyberpunk dis- cliches. Cyberpunk cliches, absolutely. The men's rights activists Ugh. who talk about taking the red pill. <laughs> yeah. So, arguably, it had a negative overall effect on popular culture in terms of it influenced a lot of people to make a lot of bad art. But... And I was wondering if looking back at it, I would say it wasn't worth it. But it is really a fabulous movie. It is so great that it is uh, – it, it, it really – it surprised me, honestly, how much I enjoyed it. Because I kind of was looking at it going, oh, I wonder if I'm going to look back at it and go, you know, and it hasn't aged all that well. And But it's, it's, it's fascinating. And it does engage – as much as I don't think that Neo is – all that built up a character, which is fine. Mm-hmm. I don't think it gets in the way of the movie, but uh, it does engage fairly seriously with this idea of like, it's like, you know, half, a, which I think is like em- emblematic of their career, half a profound idea and half like a stoner idea mm. of like this secret reality and like of the consequences is being dumped into this truth where there's no going back. You know, and maybe it'll be much worse than the blissful ignorance in which you were living before. Yes, that's funny. It takes it very seriously, that idea. And I think they have never, certainly throughout their career, they have never been afraid of tackling with these ideas that are... They Not could be silly. Right. They can, And sometimes they are silly. In the and they, but they treat them with absolute fine. sincerity. Yes. yes. Yeah, that's, uh, that's an interesting observation. I mean... They, 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 that, that sense of sort of like ideas hatched during a druggy haze definitely filters through a lot of their movies, or maybe uh, movies that were meant to be watched in a druggy haze. That's sort of exact. That's what I think of Speed Racer. It's like Speed Racer seems like something, and I've never really liked it uh-huh. that movie. But I feel like if I was a drug user, I would. That would be my favorite movie. Oh yeah, to watch. it's like a giant hallucination. Right, like those, especially all of the race sequences, the colors, which, the movement, but, just like, but also like these impossible race, like like racetracks, right. you know, that like include like looping up around and like include spikes on the track and yeah. like these cars basically fighting each other. <laughs> you know, I went back and rewatched that like yesterday. Mm-hmm. And I will say, as it's one of those movies that I feel like you fight, you kind of resist. You, I, it's, I, I feel like there's very, it's very difficult to watch it and not like resist it for so long because it is, it is like, here is, <laughs> here's a story about a family named Racer who are the, you know, who build race cars. The son is named Speed and they are going to try and save the racing industry from evil, like an evil corrupt uh, billionaire. Like it, it takes it so seriously and so at face value. But I have to say like the end, like really made me tear up a little. The last montage wow. that is like 
just like this, like the insane triumphant like moment. Like, I, there's something about like their commitment to that. Go speed racer. Go. Yeah. No, it's just like something about their commitment to it and to finding to like reaching for at least this like sublime in this ridiculous right right in this ridiculous thing right that I really appreciate. I tried to rewatch it when Jupiter right before Jupiter Ascending came out. That was when I was like because that film which didn't was not a success roundly uh you know trounced by a lot of critics although it had a few defenders has sort of slowly taken on a certain cult uh cult classic status that i wanted to give it another chance and i couldn't even finish it i actually you know <laughs> it's a it's a theme with me and the wachowskis i guess because i had the same reaction with sense eight like i watched a half of it and i was just like i can't it's just it's still not it's just not for me you know it's just not it's not connecting with me so i didn't get to the end to sob at uh, the triumphant speed racer montage. I'm sorry, but yeah. but I will say I again I give them a certain amount of credit and respect for taking that pr- concept of a live action speed racer movie and making something weird and different and not making there's a much more conventional, oh, absolutely accessible version of that movie that could be made that probably would have been a huge hit and they did not go that route. Right. And even if I didn't enjoy that movie and I still don't like it, I give them a certain amount of credit for following their peculiar muse wherever it led them into this strange druggy trippy hallucinogenic version of speed racer you know like they're the only people who would have made that version of that movie and there's something to be said for that yeah i agree and you know uh, as much as i i think that it's uh, there's a lot about that movie that really doesn't work uh, the idea that yeah they could have made like a kind of gritty version of speed racer in which it explains his name. It explains like, or he has a different normal name, right, and, and his nickname is, his is nickname. Speed Racer. Absolutely, and like, and it's just this like, basically a normal racing movie, you right? Know, like car racing movie, exactly, that, like, like a NASCAR movie. Have, his girlfriend is named Trixie. His like, right. yeah, but I, I don't want to watch that movie. <laughs> you know, right? I would rather watch something that like, totally fails half the time, but then has these moments of sublime. Honestly, than a kind of mediocre, like gritty greedy version of that story now, that sounds like a lot of their movies to me these well, moments of so the sublime I mean, mixed like with some whole, really frustrating right parts. i mean well like the, the whole point of cloud atlas is reaching for the sublime yes. right like is this these like kind of ineffable moments of connection especially when you have this this story that like it doesn't just hop eras and it doesn't just hop continents but it also hops genres right Mm -hmm. there's like the historical drama there's the post-apocalyptic one yes there's the conspiracy 70s conspiracy theory yeah there's the futuristic future one that's kind of matrixy exactly you know and i think that i mean sense8 is kind of like that as well to a certain degree i i think i think cloud atlas was more successful in that respect in terms of merging these different genres into one film yeah but it you know also to to really very sincerely try and tell Sto- like to deal with ideas of p- how the powerful treat the the weak right mm-hmm. like as in this like recurring theme i mean i think i think you like cloud atlas a little more than i do but i do like really i i, I am really impressed by its bigness you know its scale it's kind of in- attempts to go to places that i've never seen movies go to mm. well that leaves us with one last film here jupiter I think this is where we our paths diverge. Oh, but, really? Yeah. This I is like where Jupiter. one of us takes the red pill and one of us takes the blue pill. I like Jupiter. Ascending. You're gonna make a case for Jupiter ascending. All right, uh, let's let's hear it. I don't know that I need to make a case for yeah, it. Yeah, you do. All right. Well, I here's what I will say. Okay. 
And I, I'm going to borrow this argument that uh, Gavia Baker-Whitelaw at The Daily Dot made. Okay. Which is that we watch giant blockbusters all the time that are terrible, that get written off as fun, um, like trashy fun. Okay. That are kind of male-centric. Okay. And Jupiter Ascending is that fun, like that from a very female perspective. That it is, it is basically like a teenage fanfic, uh, you know, brought to giant epic life. Okay. That it is a story about a girl who gets swept up by her space werewolf boyfriend, <laughs> you know, and gets made into princess of the universe. Right. And then realizes that it's terrible. And then, you know, and then figures out a way to save Earth. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I think that it it works weirdly well while being frequently silly. And I do actually think that the kind of thread running through it about um, I hate my life, right? That mm-hmm. there's like this this story that kind of comes back around from the beginning, from what the main character says, who's played by Mila Kunis, to um, this story that's told by the villain at the end, that I think has a weird resonance to it. That in this, you know, this like hyperspace capitalism that she kind of jumps into, that everyone is just as miserable, but like on a grander scale, uh, I think is as a fable there's something about it that kind of works i i wish i saw the movie that you're describing because i you know like the idea of like a a sort of typical dumb fun blockbuster but from a female centric point of view i mean that sounds great i i i don't i didn't really feel like the jupiter jones character got to do anything fun or that's feel guy, like no the, you see i feel like that's why this is, is why like, i'm is wrong a, no but it is like a male i feel like there's like a particular like like and in treatment of this like guys who are like well she just gets rescued all the time right sure it's like female fantasy it's your hot werewolf boyfriend like scoops you up and you know i feel like i you know certainly she's not like a strong female character but i don't think she's a terrible one and i really liked that this was a story in which someone figures out someone is told they are the most important person in the universe Mm -hmm. which happens in like basically genre fiction all of the time right right? including every other movie the wachowskis have made and that she is not good at it Mm -hmm. like i actually really liked that she showed no particular skill or like a gift (laughs) with uh you know giant space corporation um machinations right that she was just a normal girl the normal girl she was before Mm -hmm. who was already making lots of bad choices Mm -hmm. and was generally lazy and that she was still that on a space princess level right yeah, I, 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 I guess I just. It seems like we just see the same things and just feel differently about it. I yeah. mean, the other, the other issue I had with this movie was that it just felt to me just totally baffling and cut to ribbons. And mm-hmm. you know, as much as we've talked about how they, the, the Wachowskis have used the clout and power that they had after the Matrix to do whatever they wanted, this was the first thing that they made that I felt like it felt like maybe there might have been some studio notes and meddling because I, it just seemed like this movie was cut. I mean, I don't remember. I, I'm, I'm looking it up right now. It says it was 127 minutes. It feels to me like maybe, again, a, a question of ambition. They maybe tried to bite off more than they could chew. But I just felt that 127 minutes, it just felt like half a movie was missing. Like there was so much that didn't make sense and why people were doing what they were doing and the intricacies of this mythology that just all seemed lost to me. That was had been cut out of the movie. And I think I heard somewhere that the original script of the movie was like 500 or 600 pages. And it felt like it to me. It felt like something that was really big that had been just chopped down to the point where it was just 
a dumb, propulsive action movie where I kept going, what, who, what's good, what, what, who is it, what, what is this person, why does, okay, he's a dog man, he's a werewolf, and he has wings, but he used to have wings, he's got rocket skates, and it's like, I, just nothing made any sense to me, and I guess I should have just gone along for the ride, but I, the, if in five years they said, there's a director's cut of Jupiter Ascending coming out, it's, that's th- three and a half hours. Would you be interested? I'd be like, heck yes, let me see it. I don't think I ever want to see the version I saw in the movie theater in February again, but I would love to see a longer version that made a little bit more sense. Well, I mean, do you though? I feel like. Yes, I do. No, I mean, I feel like I, I appreciate that. And I could, I certainly do. I would agree that this one feels like you can feel a studio hand in this one more than other ones. But I feel like all like what you're asking for is like more of the exposition that you didn't like in other things. You know, like I, I, I mean, I wonder if it's one of their problems. They is, don't know how to handle that in a more graceful way. Also, just like they seem to have trouble with going from introduction into action. Maybe. Maybe. You know, if Sensei seems to be all introduction. Until right. it arrives. Like, basically, it's all the first episode of something. Yeah. I mean, if Jupiter Ascending seems, it seems, sounds like for you, it's missing it's all pay, a bunch it's all of episodes pay in off. Yeah. 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 Maybe you're right. Maybe that's, uh, maybe, maybe. But I just, I love, like, the visual design of that movie is so spectacular. And it seemed, like, it felt, it felt like someone had put a lot of thought into it. I just didn't get to hear any of the thought. You know, like, if, if, if the exposition was compelling enough, I don't think I would mind if it was a little heavier on exposition. Because it is this incredible you know this whole massive universal conspiracy of planets and a dictatorship and the universe and the humans being used as batteries and all this stuff it's like i i felt seems kind of interesting but i just i didn't understand any of it the way that it was presented in the movie yeah i i'm a fan and i feel like if if you can if you haven't seen it yet out of all of the ones we've talked about it's the one i would say give a try to because of their like less known or less yeah, seen movies. See, I would, movies. I would say, I would definitely say, go Cloud Atlas is no, the I better say, film. I would say, Ju- go with Jupiter Ascending. Mm. It tries to do something I really enjoy, uh, even if it does it imperfectly. So, well, there we go. Our recommendations. There you go. That's what that's. Uh, the, they can decide which movie to try next based on how well, how often they agree with me or with <laughs> Allison. All right, now it's time for the segment on the show where we talk about new movies. And Allison doesn't know the name of the segment. To be fair, you also flubbed the name in an earlier version of the uh, earlier take of this. So. I can neither confirm nor deny that in a outtake of this episode, I could not pronounce the name of this segment, which is Singer and Wilmore's completely concise and totally succinct new release roundup. I got it right this time at very least. Very nice. Very yes. nice. So there is a, a couple of movies coming out uh, this coming Friday or Wednesday, whenever they're being released this week. We have both seen the big one. Allison has seen one other fairly large film. Why don't you tell us about that one first, and then we'll discuss the bigger movie. Sure. Uh, well, and also, there's one movie we haven't seen yet, which is The Gallows, another okay. Blumhouse horror film. Yes. Uh, they're showing it this week, but neither of us All seen I it know yet. is it's a horror movie, and it involves like a, 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 play, a guy with right? a noose. A, a noose. Yeah. Like oh. The Gallows, hence a noose. There but it go. seems like they're really selling the noose thing. Like, like what what horror movie like weapon haven't we used we got lots of machetes freddy's got his hand uh what can we do now a noose yep so we'll see uh but the movie i have seen is selfless which is the new movie from tarsum tarsum singh and it is starring ryan reynolds as a or sorry ryan reynolds 
as Ben Kingsley. <laughs> um, ben stars ben, ben Kingsley initially as this really wealthy man who takes part in a, an experimental procedure uh, introduced to him by a character played by Matthew Good, in which he can have his mind transferred into a new younger body before he dies. And that body is played by Ryan Reynolds. Uh, there's some joke there. I'm not going to make it. <laughs> But anyway, uh, this is a, I didn't like this movie very much, but it, it, for a moment, like, you know, I've, I've talked about the movie seconds, uh, yeah, it sounds podcast. a lot like seconds. It has like maybe a half an hour, which is like seconds and yeah. where it's maybe the most interesting part of the movie. Right. But then it becomes this kind of conspiracy where you realize that like he thought he was getting a new body that had been grown in a vat, but actually it was a used body that maybe has a family that I doesn't see. know what happened, you know, to the I original see. owner. And it becomes rapidly much less interesting. Also, you know, Tarsum has made some movies that are kind of famously gorgeous, if not always very coherent, like The Cell. Mm -hmm. Uh, And this is weirdly not a very visually interesting movie. Oh, that's disappointing. Which is very disappointing coming from him because that's always been his his trademark. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, So it's not one that I would bother with, honestly. Um, But yeah. Okay. (laughs) I give that a pass. All right. And then the one that we've both seen. Probably, I would guess, is going to be one of the huge hits of the summer, actually. Yeah. I have a feeling it's going to make a billion dollars, and I'm going to feel old and disheartened, (laughs) is Minions, which is about these three yellow blobs (laughs) from a a large race of yellow blobs. Keep going. And their names are Stuart, Kevin, and Bob. They wear overalls, and they get into wacky adventures, and they live to serve a master— and in the Despicable Me movies, they have this master played by Steve Carell. And this one, there, this is a prequel, the origin of the Minions, because I know you're all dying to know where they came from, where they, they find, uh, before they found uh, Gru, they find this other master who's Scarlet Overkill, uh, another supervillain, played by Sandra Bullock, Bullock, giving, I would say, one of the blandest vocal performances <laughs> I've ever heard in my life, where... To say she phoned it in, I, I think I wrote in my re- review, is an insult to phones, which are useful and wonderful and have never hurt anybody. And I just thought she was really bad. And I, in general, I I'm, I hadn't seen the Despicable Me movies, so I can't compare it to that. All I can say is I felt like I was watching uh, the movie U.S. Marshals, where they gave <laughs> the Tommy Lee Jones character his own spinoff, which didn't work because Tommy Lee Jones was great in The Fugitive because he was the supporting character. And these little critters, these minions... They have their moments of uh, kind of wonderful little like physical comedy because they can't speak English. They speak gibberish Uh, as the leads of their own movie. I found them inadequate in terms of supporting a story and character drama and everything. And then you pile on top of that, this main human character, this Scarlet Overkill, just completely bland and boring that it just I just found the movie had a couple of chuckles, but just just not very memorable at all. Yeah, and there are there are times where it feels like a giant toy commercial. Like it does feel like this kind of giant leveraging against like these cute characters who it, it, it's it's a movie about nothing in particular. Like right. it really like its plot is like so kind of weirdly inconsequential and it yeah. doesn't and illogical, but like yeah, it's entirely about like oh these characters are adorable and kids love them. And, like, they're just going to do cute things. Right. Yeah. Right. We are literally too old to understand that. We are just them. too old for the Minions. So, I, you know, this is. I feel like this is a movie, too. You know, this is in a summer with, like, Inside Out, which is such a, a children's film that's so rich 
that this is the movie that parents are going to take their children to and then sit there just befuddled and yes. like feeling <laughs> like horrible about their lives right. while their children are probably going to be laughing. I mean, yes. I saw this at a press screening where there were a lot of children and right. they laughed and they, they seemed... cheered before it started. Like yeah. there was a lot of love for the minions. Yeah, they they seemed pr- I would say they seemed mostly into it. There were some tr- dry spells it seemed like, but they certainly enjoyed it a lot more than I did. So, yeah. No, I guess I would say that going in, like, for parents, I'm sorry. Yes. You're going to have to deal with the minions now and probably forever because I'm sure they're going to make 10 more of these movies. Yeah. So maybe not the strongest week at the cinema. Not. Not at the cinema. But, but for- if- fortunately, we have things on de- are on demand and on streaming to recommend to you. That's right. So let's get now to uh, Behind the Eight Ball, our segment where we recommend some new releases, three of them to be exact. And then we give you some listener recommendations, two of those to be exact, that you guys emailed to us. And then we wrap things up with one film chosen blindly by number from our Netflix My Lists. Allison, do you want to go first? You want me to go first? I would love to go first. All right. Well, then why don't you start with three new releases? Well, these are three movies that I haven't gotten to see yet, and they're kind of on my list to catch up with, uh, 2005 releases. So I'm very happy to see them all turn up on streaming recently. The first is Faults, which is now streaming on Netflix. It stars Mary Elizabeth Winstead as a cult member whose parents have hired a deprogrammer to, you know, restore her to sanity slash basically kidnap her and like bring her to a hotel room and try and talk her out of her allegiance to this cult, uh, played by Leland Orser. And it's written and directed by Winstead's husband, Riley Stearns. It's his directorial debut. And it's one of those small movies that I heard a lot of good things about. Uh, and that it's kind of like, a, you know, just the two of these actors in this hotel room. And uh, I really like Mary Elizabeth Winstead. And I'm really intrigued by any any story of culty programmers. It's an underexplored niche. So that's false. It's now streaming on Netflix. Streaming on Amazon Prime is Slow West. This is a Western starring Michael Fassbender as a mysterious cowboy who helps a young man, played by Cody Smith McPhee, uh, who's traveling to find his true love. Uh, and this is another one that, you know, it was kind of traveling on the festival circuit for a while. I think multiple people called it out as being a little Coens-esque. And I just never managed to make my way to it. So it's one that I'm looking forward to watching now on Amazon Prime. And one more that is new to Netflix, Hard to Be a God. This is the Russian film directed by Alexei German and is about a group of scientists who travel to a planet similar to Earth, except in the Dark Ages. So maybe like Earth, you know, centuries past. And they then have to kind of contend with the brutal, the like kind of brutal behavior of the, the, the people they're seeing and, you know, try not to let themselves interfere. And this is a movie that, you know, got a tiny release, but I've heard a lot of people talk about. Uh, and I, it's not necessarily the easiest one to watch, but it is supposed to be remarkably, like very striking and disturbing. And uh, so I'm happy to add it to my my list queue. That is Hard to Be a God on Netflix. Okay. And how about two listener recommendations? Oh, first up, we have one from Leslie who writes, For the summer, I am rewatching the Bollywood Doom trilogy. The series combines a buddy cop theme with insanely fun musical numbers. The actors, costumes, and settings are beautiful. The films are individually quite long, so I have to watch them in chapters. And I need to make sure the cooler rater is on because this film causes me to jump out of my chair and dance along with the film yes these films are silly and the plots are convoluted but they make a fine summer watch doom 2 and 3 are on netflix 
I love the podcast and the snappy, sometimes snappish repartee. Uh, you guys kick podcast butt like a pair of Jason Sathams. Thank you. Really. I can no... think of no better compliment. Exactly. That's the nicest thing anyone's ever said about me. Yeah. So thank you, Leslie. Yeah. And we should say Doom, for those who are unfamiliar, it's spelled, Allison. D-H-O-O-M. Right. Make sure you put the H in there yes. if you're and looking for And this was like it. a monster Bollywood hit. Yeah. These, this trilogy. Yeah. Um, and then we have a recommendation from Daniel from Jacksonville. Who writes, not sure if you've decided a movie for this week's episode or not, but maybe give The Hunt a look. It's currently on Netflix, was up for an Oscar for Best Foreign Film, and has a pretty strong performance by Mads Mikkelsen. Um, that we are a big fan of The Hunt. We actually have already talked about it. It was the uh, the main review January of last year on episode number 52. But uh, I think we were both very fond of it then and uh, can definitely second that recommendation. The Hunt uh, currently on Netflix. All right, and one film chosen blindly by number from your my list. Uh, you gave me number 61. That is How I Live Now, the movie starring Saoirse Ronan as a teen American teenager who is sent to the English countryside to stay with her aunt there for the summer, only for World War III to break out Ugh. and for England to basically crumble mm. into anarchy. You know, it's your basic YA story about terrorists, <laughs> trauma, and first cousin incest, and there's nothing <laughs> I like better. So it has been on my uh, my my list for a while now. Time to I think it's time to bump that one up a little higher. Right? It's a 61. That should be in the teens yeah. at the very lowest. Yeah, yeah. Um, <laughs> so. All right, Matt, are you ready? <laughs> yes. Okay, uh, three new releases. Okay, first up on Netflix, one of the first and most influential of all buddy cop movies, 48 Hours from action master Walter Hill. A super young and very charismatic Eddie Murphy stars as Reggie Hammond, who's sprung from prison by San Francisco cop Jack Kate, played by Nick Nolte. And they have 48 hours to solve a crime before uh, Reggie gets sent back to the slammer. It's funny and exciting. It's definitely a whole lot more interesting than many of the buddy cop movies that came in its wake. Sort of like The Matrix with the the Matrix derivatives. Uh, 48 Hours is to its derivatives. It's a very interesting movie. Often imitated, never duplicated. Not even by Walter Hill, Eddie Murphy, and Nick Nolte in another 48 Hours, which is kind of terrible. And also streaming on Netflix, I recommend you stick with the original recipe, 48 Hours. That is also now streaming on Netflix. Also now streaming on Netflix, a core text in the field of Schwarzeneggonomics. The original Conan the Barbarian from 1982, directed by John Milius, starring Arnold Schwarzenegger as a slave who becomes a warrior on a quest to find the man who killed his parents. He's basically like Batman, really, when you think about it. He's Batman in like olden times with a sword and an Austrian accent. Netflix says that this movie is, quote, violent and, quote, imaginative. And I, <laughs> quote, agree. And I would add, quote, awesome. So that's Conan the Barbarian on Netflix. Finally, now on Hulu is Werner Herzog's Cave of Forgotten Dreams, a 2010 documentary originally presented in theaters in 3D about the art of the Chauvet Cave, the oldest known paintings in the entire world. They're cave paintings, and they're like in the neighborhood of 30,000 years old. And I know that sounds like more sedate subject matter for Werner Herzog, who tends to prefer more extreme settings and scenarios for his movies. But let it be said that the air in this cave is so toxic that the crew could only spend a couple of hours at a time in the cave, and they could only stand on a walkway that was like two feet wide to shoot these paintings. You know, it's not dragging an entire steamship up a mountain, but it is something, and the artwork is 
really incredible and beautiful and, and powerful to look at. And since we can't actually go physically see it for ourselves, this is probably the closest any of us will ever get. So that is Cave of Forgotten Dreams that is now streaming on Hulu. All right. Two listener recommendations. Our first one comes from David in Brunswick, West Australia. Listener in Australia. That is great. David writes, Hi, Allison and Matt. I have a suggestion for listener recommendations. Many would be forgiven for thinking that shows like Game of Thrones, catering for both the highbrow and the lowbrow in one show is a new thing. However, listeners should be pointed to the place where that really got started way back in 1976. The show I am recommending is I, Claudius, currently streaming on Hulu. This great show stars Jerick. Derek Jacoby, John Hurt, and even Patrick Stewart appears in it, along with many others, set in Rome from the time of Augustus to the rule of Claudius, plotting, double-crossing, and deranged rulers abound. Thanks for continuing to produce a very enjoyable show. Ciao. That's from David in Brunswick, West Australia. Thank you, David. And our next recommendation comes from Kagan in Salt Lake City, Utah. Kagan writes, hey, Matt and Allison, the show is amazing. I love listening to you talk about movies. Always looking forward to the next episode. I wish it was weekly. Does not compare us to Jason Statham, though. Oh, well, You'll in have... our hearts. So I'm, I'm sorry, Kagan. We were, maybe if you had compared us to Jason Statham, we would do the show weekly. But <laughs> instead, it's going to stay biweekly. Kagan writes, I wanted to recommend the film Society from 1989. It is currently available for streaming uh, on YouTube for free. Not sure if the studio knows it is there, but this is the only place currently to see this film online. This movie is for anyone who thinks they've seen every 80s film. It was quickly dismissed in the U.S. when it came out. It isn't perfect, but it's really unique and fun the ending is so memorable and horrific i highly recommend it i think it would be a fun film for you two to review keep up the great work from kagan in salt lake city utah thank you very much kagan all right one from your my list you gave me number 36 which is another film about teenagers it is the documentary teenage from filmmaker matt wolf and the description from netflix is this film explores the origins of the modern-day teenager, a demographic that didn't even exist until the mid-20th century. And this one came out just a couple of years ago. Sounds like a fascinating subject. Just haven't gotten around to watching it yet. That is Teenage, and that is uh, available on Netflix. Allison, we have a, a group of three recent indies to uh, choose from as our new listener's choice options. You have the first one. What is it? Well, it is one that I've already talked about. It is Faults uh, from Riley Stern, starring Mary Elizabeth Winstead, and currently streaming on Netflix. And I think, you know, maybe we could do cult themes. There are some interesting cult movies out there. I think there's a lot to talk about. But uh, Cult meaning movies about cults. Yes, about cults. We've Not... already, I think we've already maybe even done one on cult movies. Yes. <laughs> but yes, movies about cults. I right. think, you know, that, that might be something we can do. Definitely. Um, yeah, and it's a movie I'm interested in seeing, and it sounds like there's a lot to talk about in it. I haven't seen that one either. Another one that I've already added to my, uh, my list. So I'm looking forward to seeing that one as well. That would be an excellent choice. Our second option is not on Netflix yet, but it will be streaming on, on Netflix starting on July 14th, which will give us plenty of time and you plenty of time to watch it before our next episode. And that is a new horror film and a new indie horror film called Creep, directed by Patrick Bryce. And I'll read you the uh, plot description. I think I got this from IMDb. When a videographer answers a Craigslist ad for a one-day job in a remote mountain town, he finds his client is not at all what he initially seems. And Patrick Price, the director, also co-wrote the film with 
his co-star, he stars in the film as well, Mark Duplass. So Mark Duplass plays the the client. Patrick Bice plays the videographer. And I've heard a lot of good things about this movie, that it's very low budget, very low-fi, but that it really uh, you know, uses the kind of found footage aesthetic, which I can be a fan of under the right circumstances. It uses it in an interesting way, that it's a really disturbing movie, that Mark Duplass gives a really good perform. I think I just almost called him Mark Duplass's, but that was an accident that he gives a really good performance in the movie. And this is another one I'm, I'm really looking forward to checking out. It just came out at, in theaters and in, on VOD, but it'll be on Netflix on July 14th. That's Creep. All right. And we went for a third American indie, recent American indie for our third pick. It is Amira and Sam, which is now streaming on Amazon Prime. 2014 film uh, written and directed by Sean Mullen. And it stars Martin Starr of Freaks and Geeks as a, a veteran who's come back from war and who starts a romance with uh, a, an Iraqi immigrant who is in the U.S. illegally and who is played by uh, Dina Shahabi. And it's a romantic comedy. And I feel like I've heard some good things about it. And also that it just tr it tries to you know have a romance from two very unexpected characters and you know uses their perspectives to explore some themes that just don't come up much in romantic comedy and it really indie film has been what you have to rely on for a romantic comedy these days mm. the studio versions have been some pretty dire stuff yeah. so uh, i always want to take a look when there's an indie that that kind of does something interesting with the genre Indie romantic comedy could be a good uh, theme, too. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, so that's Amira and Sam, and it is streaming on Amazon Prime. Okay. So which recent American indie should we review on the next episode of Film Spotting Streaming Video Unit? You can send your pick to SVU at filmspottingsvu.com, or you can enter in the poll on the right-hand side of the page at filmspottingsvu.com. Your vote must be received by Monday, July 13th at noon. After that, we'll announce the winner on Twitter at our Twitter account, twitter.com slash filmspottingsvu. And you will have all that week to watch the film and then join us for our conversation on our next episode, which will be on Tuesday, July 21st. Filmspottingsvu.com is also where you can find our show archive, as well as a list of direct links to all of the movies and the occasional TV show we discussed on the episode. Uh, the Film Spotting SVU Remix theme song is by Vince Vandal. Listen to more of Vince's work at vincevandal.com. And we will be back in two weeks with more movie recommendations and the review that you pick. And in the meantime, you can always follow us on Twitter at Allison Wilmore and at Matt Singer. And you can follow the show at Film Spotting SVU. It's where we announce the winner of each show's listener's choice poll. And we share more streaming suggestions, uh, titles that you may want to check out that are new. Um, and always uh, send us your recommendations as well. If you've seen something that you like, uh, we always need more recommendations to the show. You can send them to SVU at filmspottingsvu.com. And for Filmspotting SVU, I'm Allison Wilmore. And I'm Matt Singer. Thanks for listening.